welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Hello and welcome to episode 131 of the Proper Mental Podcast. This week I'm joined by the writer, poet and performer, Mr Tim Clare. And Tim has experienced anxiety and panic attacks for over a decade, sometimes having panic attacks several times a day. And these would often leave him curled up in a ball, screaming for help. And eventually Tim got to a place where he could no longer go on living with that level of anxiety and he made this decision to get control of it. So he set out to explore all the common treatments, cures and support options. And he spent a year trialling and learning about things like exercise and medication, cold water, diet, psychedelics, hypnotherapy, you name it really. He really did look at everything. And he researched the science, he looked at the studies, he spoke to the experts and he tried everything himself. And he wrote all about this in his book, which is called Coward, Why We Get Anxious and What We Can Do About It. And in this episode, I chat to Tim about anxiety and about how it feels to have a panic attack. We talk about his year-long experiment and some of the different things that he tried and what he learned about anxiety and ultimately about himself along the way. And it's a wonderful conversation. I just think it's such a cool thing that Tim's done. You know, he just set out to just try and sort himself out. And that's just so, I suppose, easier said than done. And it's also really brave, right? And the amount of effort and work that's gone into it, you know, he's looking at studies, he's finding the people who made the studies, he spoke to scientists and therapists and neuroscientists and researchers and all sorts, you name it, he spoke to them. And it's a really balanced view, he tried everything himself, he gives you his opinion on it, he also gives the science from both sides and just kind of explores it from all the options that were available to him. And in the book as well, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of Tim in the book. There's a lot of really vulnerable writing. And I really saw him in the book. I know that's a funny thing to say because obviously it was a book about him, but I also saw a lot of myself. There was a lot of that relatable crossover that I talk about all the time. And I was really rooting for him. You know, I really wanted him to find whatever it was that he needed to find so that he could feel better. The book takes you on a bit of a journey with him. So by the time he logged on to Zoom so we could have this chat, I felt like I knew him because I'd read so much about him. But yeah, he's a lovely bloke. It's a great book. It's out now, wherever you get books from. I've put a link to Tim's website in the episode notes and there you can find links to his socials and all the other things that he does. And if you go to my website, propermentalpodcast.com, same for me. There's all the links to my socials and to all the other things that, that I do and that you might be interested in. If you would be interested in hearing more episodes about anxiety, there's a couple that off the top of my head I can recommend. You only have to go back a few weeks for a conversation I had with Josh Fletcher, who is known on social media as Anxiety Josh. He's an anxiety-based therapist and I recorded a wonderful episode with him. And if you go back quite a lot further, there's an episode with Claire Eastham, who wrote one of my favourite mental health books, All About Anxiety. And that's a really wonderful episode too. If you listen to those, if you listen to this one, if you listen to any at all, if you could take two minutes to leave a review, I'd really appreciate it. And I think that is everything you need to know. So this is episode 131 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Tim Clare. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy.
Uh, so here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Tim Clare. How are you, mate? I'm doing really well, thank you. Mate, that's good to hear. That's really, really good to hear. Thank you very much for joining me today, mate. Um, whenever I do episodes about anxiety, um, I like to do like a little caveat at the start of, uh, of the episode. And I noticed as well when I read your book that you did something similar in the in the early stages of the book. And that's just that when we're talking about anxiety today, we're probably going to be more likely to be talking about disordered anxiety, right? Anxiety more as a mental illness rather than just general normal anxiety, household stuff that, you know, we should all experience as part of being humans. Um, but I always think that because of the word anxiety and how we talk about it, it has such an impact about how we come to understand it. And it's always worth mentioning that, but I suppose that's as good a place to start as anywhere. And, you know, what are your sort of thoughts on the, the language around anxiety and how we, how we talk about it? Yeah. Like we, we need anxiety. And I think it's important to make that distinction right at the beginning. I'm glad you've said that to, talk about there's disordered anxiety like we can we can say this at the beginning and then use the word anxiety just because it, it rolls off the tongue a little bit easier right we don't want to continually sound like we're being pedantic and saying disordered disruptive anxiety and so talking about anxiety as a uh i suppose because we're so used to talking about depression right which doesn't really need any preface before it you know experiencing depression is not something that you go well everybody is going to experience depression over the course of a day you know like you wouldn't say that that would be wrong but we often talk about anxiety and depression in the same breath but of course anxiety has this kind of lay term when we're talking about the mental illness of excessive fear and avoidance and even as I'm saying that you know I'm sure you're hearing like problematic or questionable things in there because I've just said excessive and I haven't defined what makes uh, fear excessive or well, that might be completely defined by your culture by you know your own expectations all that so that's uh, becomes woolly in its own way but of course like everyone experiences anxiety and uh you know it wouldn't be it, i only have to go on my facebook uh page to see be shown loads of videos of people you know doing base jumping off cliffs or bungee diving off bridges those videos have almost zero impact if most humans don't experience, in fact, all humans don't experience anxiety because I feel something like visceral when I see them. I like, oh, whoa, what are you doing on that mountain bike? Like, that is not, but that's an enjoyable anxiety. You wouldn't say to someone, oh, I watched a video of someone climbing or doing a free climb up a skyscraper. It made me feel really funny. So I go, cool, it sounds like you're suffering from clinical anxiety. We go, yeah, that's the that's the enjoyment of it. You can't watch a movie and, you know, someone's trying to hack into a mainframe and they're being, you know, they're being traced and you can see it getting closer and closer. If you're not experiencing anxiety there, that movie is not going to be that interesting to you, right? It's not the only reason we engage with narrative, but... It's an important part of it. So I, I just say all that in a way that might be sort of thunderingly obvious to some people. To say, like, anxiety in itself is just not only is it a normal part of uh, human life, but it's not even necessarily a bad part of human life. It can be a very enjoyable part of human life. If you go to people sign up to Halloween experiences, you know, to get scared, 
I, I'm not trivializing anxiety, but they are experiencing anxiety when they go through those, right? And it's pleasurable because it's consensual, because there's a context to it. So, yeah, it's really important to say, and, and there's tiny little tweaks that anxiety does all the time that makes me, if I'm out for a run, and I, I might have like a moment where I'm kind of coming close to the road where without even noticing it, my awareness of my environment increases. I'm looking here, I'm looking here. Now, I, only if I consciously have to think about it, I'll notice that I've become more vigilant. But that's anxiety giving me that prod to check the road, to stop, to slow down. I will have slightly raised, uh, have, I'll have, you know, slightly raised uh, attention to my surroundings. That's That prod's anxiety. We'd never say that was disordered. And we'd also probably not say it was unpleasant. It's just part of the natural flow of life. So, yeah, it's a really, really good point to start with. And I think um, it is important when we talk about anxiety that we're not talking about an enemy that we have to absolutely stamp out because you cannot do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky. I always think the language around this stuff is really, really tricky because first of all, we can only use the words we've got available to us, right? We can't know everything. And also it's, um, yeah, if we, if every time we said the word anxiety, we had to caveat it with everything you've just mentioned we never get to talk about anything there'd be too many words for the conversation you know so we have to kind of we have to find a find a way uh, but one thing i've noticed like probably over the last i don't know maybe year or so of doing this this podcast um is because these words are coming more and more common commonplace then we're having to use you kind of touched upon it then like other words to make us to get our point across. So people will often say to me like, Oh, I experience really severe bipolar. And, but we don't really need the word severe in front of bipolar because anyone who experiences any mental illness, it's severe to them and their experience, right? There's no kind of like, there's no individual scale to it. So it's like, it's a real like kind of messy, murky area. And, uh, yeah, I like I quite enjoy exploring it really because everyone's got a different idea. And every time I kind of talk about it, someone says something like, Oh yeah, that's a really good point. How am I gonna like put that into the melting pot of all the other good points and try and get a better understanding of it? But um words are important, right? Yeah, I, I think it's worth saying there's there's a there's this there was a paper that was written in 2016 called Concept Creep, which I don't I don't agree with all of it, but it talks about it uses psychology as an example where different conditions and terms for conditions will slowly expand their meaning and it will get broader and it will generally get less severe as well. And the author gives the example of trauma, which originally just referred to the sort of medical sort of like major blood loss, kind of like it was like a physical trauma. And then we expanded it metaphorically to mean psychological trauma and it's slowly expanded out. And now we understand that trauma can not necessarily be one individual event. And all of these things, I think, are useful. But um, it sometimes make, means that then the word is less precise. And that's fine. Words can lose precision and gain a kind of umbrella meaning that mean we have. But then we have to come up with crunchier terms in the middle of them. I, I think what's worth saying is we're going to find words that are like handy coat hooks to hang a bit of experience on. But ultimately, we can't really ever understand each other's experience unless we have the moment of sitting down and saying, well, what, what's it been like for you? 
and listening to the person talk about it. Like we can, we can make shortcuts and they're useful. Um, and there are not always situations where you want to give your whole backstory, but you might be useful to come out with like a very quick uh, sort of sum summary word that can give people the general territory of where you're operating in. But there is no shortcut for going, what's it been like for you? Because these diagnoses, even when you look at the DSM-5, right, and you look at something that seems very precise, like generalized anxiety disorder or any condition, um, they've got a series of criteria and you don't have to have all of them and you can mix, mix and match them. And for panic attacks alone, there's over 7,000 different possible combinations of symptoms that you can put together to make a clinically acceptable panic attack. Uh, that's a lot of diversity within it, right? And so I think we've got to understand that uh, these little terms, we can use them to gesture towards something. But <laughs> we can't, much as, you know, some of us, you know, find vulnerability in talking a little bit difficult, uh, <laughs> it, it, I, I think there's no substitute for conversation and listening to someone and hearing their experience. Yeah, that human connection, right? It's a real, it's a beautiful thing. And it's a really useful, useful thing as well. And it, it, I don't know what kind of comes up for me then really is that it's fascinating that it doesn't matter how much science we use how many words we use, what studies we do, none of it can account for the experience of being human, which is ultimately more complicated and complex than anything that we could possibly try. And that's um, that's uh, like scary and inspiring at the same time, I think, you know. But um, if we could just rewind a little bit, Tim, I suppose, and with regards to your own experiences with anxiety, um, would you kind of when you look back do you always feel like you were like an anxious person you know is that something that arrived for you early on in your life no uh I would say the opposite I mean I'm going slightly from some so and and, and maybe the more that so so no is the uh short poetically truthful but maybe inaccurate because as I said like everyone it, and I can piece together bits of anxiety early on but I think that's a little bit sort of retrospective. But when I speak to like my mum, for example, you know, I talked to her about it. She said, oh, no, you were fearless. You know, I was like babbling off, you know, on the beach and and run, you know, falling into rock pools, running. I, I mean, my mum talks about me running away when they we, they were on the beach. And we were, unfortunately, we lived in the West Country. So the beach, local beach was Western Supermare, which is, you know, not... Uh, great water quality but it's also got the second highest tidal variance in the world and they just watched me running away and assumed I'd come back and my mum says they were like well he'll look back at some time at some point and realize that we're not with him and she said it, I, I probably was about a mile away before they were like he's not coming back and then they sprinted after me um because I wasn't I wasn't in and and, and so yeah a lack of I was really gung-ho. I think anyone who knew me would have thought me as quite loud and gregarious and, you know, <laughs> quite noisy and gobbing off quite a lot. I, I think I had that reputation more than anything else. I can see moments, you know, I was bullied at school and I found that very difficult and there were things I worried about, but it wasn't really until I was like a teenager, you know, 15, that I went through a period of being quite severely bullied where I think I suddenly got like a bunch of self-awareness. Like a lot of my behaviours were not, um, had not aged with me well. You know, they were not aged. I still seemed quite immature. And I think that resulted in me sticking out a little bit. 
and sticking out more as I got older. And then like quite a lot of deep anxiety started kicking in. And also like when I was seven, my granddad died very suddenly. And I think that would fit, you know, a fairly standard. I've got like those, what they call flashbulb memories from that time. I can recreate what was on TV, the order of cereal boxes in the cupboard. Um, I can recreate the policeman's signature in my mind. Like I can see his name. No one else can remember this, but I can remember all of it. So I think a lot of those things, um, I think that was like the beginning of, and, and it wasn't really, we didn't really talk about it. And I, I, I don't think my family were like particularly emotionally repressed, but I was quite young. My brother was a few years younger than me as well. And I think my parents just didn't realise, you know, for, for obvious reasons, they wanted to give me a normal childhood and and um, not bring, not continue to bring it up and be morbid and go, are you still, do you worry about like your granddad's death? Does that bother you while I'm eating my sort of Weetos or whatever? So I can understand why they did it, but it was... It was only like later that we sort of realised how much it had affected me and how little we talked about it. So, yeah. And then I think, you know, by the time I was at university and stuff, it was like really clear that I was suffering pretty badly from anxiety. Yeah. It's such a strange one, isn't it? Anxiety, because it, it like internally, it can really like rule your life. But um, externally, people can have kind of no idea. And, you know, like it, it, it plays out so differently because I suppose it is a big part of it is around avoidance and um, yeah, you just kind of find a way of living. I would describe myself as a, as a young person as being very, very anxious. And I didn't know what that was. I thought that was a personality trait. I thought I was just weird. And because a lot of my anxiety was driven from the sort of um, just the high school and survival and trying to, you know, blend in and not stand out. Well, the idea that I had a weird personality was just like, no one can find out about this. Right. So it's like you become, I think a lot of people who are anxious around that time become particularly good at masking it, hiding it, you know, and in a, in a way that also feeds it. Right. But it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's always interesting to look back and kind of look at those moments where you go, Oh, that that's definitely featured or that's played a part or it's, um, yeah, it's a, it can be a funny puzzle, can't it? Trying to look back and think, how did I end up being like this? It's weird to me to realise that a lot of people didn't know I was anxious and didn't realise I was anxious. Like, I didn't have a reputation as being anxious, uh, especially when I was younger. And then, and also you get the flip side to that, which is when you start talking about anxiety, and especially, you know, when you do something in the heart, where you write a book about it, so people know <laughs> you're like the anxiety guy the number of people I know who will then disclose that either they went through a period of intense anxiety to the point of almost sort of mental breakdown or literal mental breakdown, or that they're going through really severe problems with anxiety now. And you're just like, it, it, it's like, it's, it's, it's like a secret society. You're like, well, you have completely hoodwinked me because I had no idea. In fact, I thought the opposite. And so many things, I remember being at a party once and feeling really anxious and being in a corner, like really anxious and wanting to go. And then the next week someone said, oh yeah, I saw you at the party. I could tell you thought it was, you know, I could tell you were above it because like you're in a corner, sort of like cool, sort of standing back thinking this is a bit naff. And I was like, oh, that was not my experience, but it had been experiences 
it had been seen as me being sort of like cool and enigmatic, <laughs> which is so bizarre. Whereas in my head, I was, I was, I was, you know, I was, I was like in a flop sweat, like all my throat was tight. Because, but people don't have access to that internal experience, do they? So they don't know. We're actually not that great at reading a lot of aspects of body language. Yeah, very much so. No, I get that at all. Yeah, I think at, at times in my life, I'd have been described as, you know, aloof or even arrogant, you know, and it was like, oh, I'm not um, not looking at you and talking to you because I think I'm better than you. It's because I physically can't make myself make eye contact with you at the moment, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting, like the external interpretation and the vibe you give off. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating. That's really got me thinking, actually, Tim. But um, when do when does things ramp up, mate? When does like panic and panic attacks enter the enter the picture for you? Yeah, I've thought about this, and it's like because I it wasn't until I wrote the book actually because the, my panic attacks had stayed with me for over a decade by the time I came to write the book, and so it's like, well, what, 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 when was my first one? And then I remembered being like I I, rem, I remembered the fir, first thing where I'd, I'd had like an incident in a pub where some guys had like followed me to it and then sat me down at a table and two guys had like one was on the like fire exit one was on the main exit checking I couldn't leave there was a guy either side of me it's like the mafia <laughs> like two guys sat either side of me at the table with their friends sat across from me to, to address me and when I tried to get up they kind of pushed me down into my seat uh and a really sort of scary experience but then the next day I went to some it was something like I think I went to Waitrose or something you know like the most middle class least threatening environment and just had like a moment in the freezer aisle <laughs> of like I guess like some people will experience this, but like this sort of derealization, everything going wobbly, uh, my peripheral peripheral vision disappearing, uh, and suddenly being like, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, and that overwhelming me. And then I had a couple of others. You know, one in Victoria train station, one when I moved into like my flat in Cambridge for the first time that at the time I wouldn't, I guess they di I didn't at first when I was like reconstructing things go, oh, that was my first panic attack because I didn't know what a panic attack was. And so what it felt like was me kind of going, felt like I was going mad, you know, it felt like I was going mad and it felt like I had these moments of like all colours getting bright, the world not seeming real, me not being able to breathe, me feeling like I was under threat and people were going to attack me. Um, all this stuff that sounds... I, I'm not surprised that a lot of people first present, they first discover they've got a panic disorder when they present either to psychiatric services saying, I'm like going mad, like I think I've got, you know... Or they present to A&E saying, I think I'm having a heart attack. Uh, because both of those things were sort of experiences for me, really. And, and, and then it sort of kept going and they got worse uh, until I was having them at least once a week on average. 
but often then when I'd have it, it would be every day. Uh, and sometimes when I'd have one, it would be, be like multiple times a day. They sort of didn't come on their own. And they would be intense. I wouldn't be able to breathe. I would feel this like deep sense of terror. Like I was going to be like beaten up or hit in the head. This deep sense of like terror. And then my throat would close up. I couldn't, felt like I couldn't breathe. Um, I wouldn't be able to think straight. Um, I'd be pouring sweat. I'd be screaming, which is not everyone's. And this is what I want to say. Like people are very different. There's a whole range of symptoms of panic attacks, some of which are culturally bound as well. There's some that really only are common in certain cultures. Um, and, and I would, you know, it was like very embarrassing because it wasn't and I'm not saying that it's not that it's fine to have a panic attack where you just are locked in your body. You can't speak and you feel like you're having a heart attack because that's terrifying in just a different way. Right. But um, it was really I suppose it feels like it, you don't feel like you are fulfilling the masculine ideal when you're on the floor, like clawing at the carpet. Like I'm, you know, I'm an atheist, but, you know, begging God to like help you and terrified. And I, 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 and I quit drinking. Right. So I, 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 up until then, I drunk quite a lot. I did a lot of stand up on and stand up poetry on stage. I like my main income was from going around and performing. It was very, I did loads of festivals. It was easy for me to drink as part of my job and that not to be, no one would raise an eyebrow because most of my performances were in bars or at festivals or at theatres with drinks laid on. You know, you know, there was a year, 2009, I think I worked out from like the beginning of June to halfway through September. I only had three weekends where I wasn't sleeping in a tent. So I was in a scenario where I could drink from about midday and it would not raise an eyebrow for half of my week, right? Because I was at festivals. Um, and that, you can really creep up. And I, I quit drinking, thinking, ah, well, what's going on here is I'm drinking too much. And, uh, and it got worse, which is not an argument against uh, reducing or stopping problematic alcohol use. But I think it shows how alcohol is often used as a uh, we, we use it as self-medicating. And um, one of the challenges about dealing with that is when you stop, you have to address the underlying problems. And the first thing you may be doing is getting rid of a dysfunctional but very real coping mechanism. Yeah, that's a wonderful point, mate. And it, it, it matches with my own experience as well. You know, I'm sober. And um, when I stopped drinking, that's when I realized a drink for me was like liquid courage, right? I had no idea I was scared of everything until I stopped drinking. And then, you know, then then it, that's when I really had to kind of, uh, yeah, meet myself going backwards almost. So yeah, I completely, uh, I completely, uh, get that. Yeah. Um, you're the sort of the premise of, of your, your book and I'm explaining it for people listening. I, I feel a little bit, I'm telling you what your own book is about, but, um, is obviously you, um, going and, and researching and experiencing and really like a deep dive into everything that's ever been recommended to support anxiety, to cure anxiety, to help anxiety. What got you to that point where you were like, I now need to try 
everything. I'm going to take this big deep dive and I'm just going to try and fucking sort this mess out once and for all. Well, you know, funnily enough, the, the uh, at the time of recording, the research that kicked it off for me has just got came out this this Monday, um, which is uh, my daughter was involved in some child research, research into sort of infant brains and language development. And we signed her up to it at the University of East Anglia. And I obviously, you know, I, the parent needs to take her in. They, they don't just they don't just take your child away for six months while they perform tests on her. So I go in with her and I, I took her to she had like an MRI uh she uh they did brain scans while they got her to you know visual tracking and she wore like a a recording device an ambulatory recording device so they could check how many words she was exposed to in a day and how that might affect her brain development really really interesting and at the same time my anxiety was really bad and i'd read all these terrible things about how ang- parental anxiety can affect children and I don't think guilt is a good motivator and I wouldn't recommend it, but it really crystallized for me that even if I didn't sort of love myself or have very much confidence in myself, I, I suppose the sort of way I was trying to, uh, I was trying to force myself to do some to do something was like, well, you know, even if you can't love yourself, do you love your daughter? And like, do you want to, she's likely to copy the behavior you model. So if you're able to learn to love yourself and do these things for yourself, she's going to see you doing that and then she'll model that behaviour. So that was how I kind of tricked myself into trying to love myself more and go and do this and make an effort was like, look, I know you don't believe you can get better. I know you've had panic attacks for over 10 years every week. Like it's just you. It just feels completely part a piece of you and that your anxiety is so bad but you have it all the time and you try all these things and every time it's not made a dent or it stopped it for a little while and then it's come back but do you still like the alternative is that you're just like this forever and you, de- you definitely are and your daughter will be affected by it or do you just like do we just like go for a year and really really try and i, I was seeing them like scan her brain as she did these tasks and i was like and I was chatting with the psychologists and I just thought, and the neuroscientists, and I thought, like, I'm watching her thing. I, I feel like we know so much and I'm continually be reading articles and, you know, being people sending me articles about anxiety because they know that I suffer. You know, my nan cutting out paper clippings and sending them in an envelope to me saying, look, there's this study that might be a breakthrough treatment for anxiety. And it's like, it's very clear that a lot of these are in, stage two or stage three of like trials then they've not been approved they're not on the nhs but i keep reading in five years time this might be you know a new intervention for anxiety and i thought well can i just go to these people now and say what works because i can choose i can choose to do that you know i could i could just do it myself and like i'll try all these things i'll try all this stuff i've been reading about the microbiome and gut health. I'll try all these di- or the things about, so, and I will speak to everyone and I'll try them all. And maybe that will give me, I'll go and speak to a neuroscientist and say, how can I deal with this? I'll go and speak to every all these experts and I'll apply it. And, and by saying I'm writing a book, that might give me a bit more access. Uh, they might say yes. And to my surprise, actually, I, I, I think almost nobody said no. 
I think almost everyone I messaged, um, emailed, just was like, yeah, and, and to the really silly things as well, where I, the first thing I did was go to the library and I just sat in Norwich Forum Library and I got this big book that was like Neuroscience Volume 5 and I opened it to the anxiety section. I read the anxiety section and it has the history of like how we've discovered it in the brain. And I got to like the last person where they were talking about all his work and I was like, oh, he seems like he's done a lot on that. I wonder if he's still alive. <laughs> and he was. And, and I've emailed him and like that day... The guy of the textbook was like, yeah, what, should we set up a time for us to talk about this? And, and it was just really funny to me that I sort of had a very naive and direct way of approaching these things. Where I was like, who's the man in the history that they say did the thing in the textbook? And then I'll just say hello. Um, so it was a very sort of naive and but in a way quite effective because and, and people were sort of lovely as well and gave up a lot of time to talk to me and 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 so that's kind of what the book is really yeah mate that's um that's really cool and it's a really beautiful like the reasoning behind it you know and uh, like as a parent myself I really kind of identified with I mean uh, uh, countless hours I've spent in therapy talking about and worrying about how I've behaved when I'm not well and how the impact that that will have on my kid. You know, I think anyone who's a parent and also has a mental illness or who has experienced mental health, like that's the sort of shit that keeps you up at night. Right. So like what better driver to, um, to kind of like nip it in the bud once and for all is, um, it, sometimes we need to, yeah, we need to find our bravery from somewhere, right? And say, right, I'm just going to fucking do this thing because I can't not do it any longer. And that's just that, you know? But um, Ab yeah. Absolutely. Although I would, I, I sort of would stress that like one, like I, I, I started coming to that idea from a position of not being, of not having been a parent very long. And as my daughter grows up, I see that she's a lot more sort of resilient and, uh, a lot more sarcastic than I than I than I maybe gave her credit for. And I think the important thing is in an age-appropriate way to be like authentic. I think it's much more scary for a child to for them to say, for you to say, them to say, what's wrong? And you go, nothing. And you're and you're sad to have that dissonance between how they're intuitively reading you and what you tell them. That sort of sends a message that being sad or being anything other than sort of chirpy and brilliant is shameful and wrong and, and dreadful. And actually, it's it's much better, I think, uh, and I could be wrong, you know, I'm not setting myself up as a model parent, but I think it's much less scary and, and much easier to be like, I'm feeling quite, oh, I'm just, I'm feeling sad today and I'm finding it a bit hard and, you know, I'm a bit tired, um, but it, it'll be, it's okay to feel like that. Yeah, I, I think that is much less disturbing than that kind of veneer of like, no, we're going to have I want no, I want everybody to have a lovely picnic and be re and be feeling really low because maybe something's happened at work or a parent is ill and you're worried about them. I, I think it's much, much better, even if you don't kind of go into the content of precisely what's bothering you. Uh, because it might not be age appropriate, it might be, but like um, I think it's it's uh, the, the real important thing is without using your child as like 
your therapist or making it, you know, one thing I do say to my daughter is, you know, my feelings and other grown-ups' feelings are not your responsibility. Like if I'm feeling sad, it's never your fault. It's never something you need to fix. Um, But also it's okay for sometimes, you know, we'll feel sad or happy and that's okay. Um, And she's kind of, she's kind of cool with that. I mean, obviously it remains to be seen when she actually goes up, she may, I'm sure she'll have some things to say and criticisms about how, you know, I've handled it. But I think in general, uh, you know, and and part of this is by necessity as well. Like I'm never going to be able to like present this like perfect rock who never has low points or difficult times and stuff. So it's like meeting my, I'm, I'm making this philosophy by necessity, right? Which is like, well, if I can't be, perfect then i'm going to try and be compassionate and authentic yeah and just demonstrate that right just live it rather than think too much about it i often think that parenting is kind of like a it's almost like a pendulum and they're like all we're doing is just trying to do the opposite to what our parents did and then our kids will do the opposite and it just goes back and forth you know and hopefully we can just make that swing a little bit smaller but um a therapist once told me about a type of um like a a type of parenting i think it was like scandinavian because they seem to be like good at this stuff right but it was um it was the the idea of it he called it um just good enough parenting and he's like just good enough just just be just be good enough you don't have to be perfect and you know children need to know that the the world can be a, a dark and scary place and they're going to have to navigate that and if everything is perfect at home the first time they step out and realize things aren't perfect they're going to be in too much of a, a shock you know um the same guy I once said to me like uh, in a in a session I once said to him um I'm just really worried that my son Reese um you know in like 10 15 years time he's going to end up you know in this chair like I am talking about these things and it's all going to be my fault and and the guy said to me and it was like a little light bulb moment for me he said listen like if when your son gets to that age if he's self aware enough to know that he needs therapy and he can afford to, to go private you've probably done a pretty fucking good job and I was like Do you know what yeah that makes a lot of sense right that makes a makes a makes a lot of sense i think sometimes we can be uh too hard on ourselves when it comes to all that stuff but anyway i uh, i digress mate how did you start to choose the um the things that you were gonna explore was some of this stuff on your radar was it a case of just like right i'm just gonna make a list and i'm just gonna go for it or did you kind of like find things on the way or how did how did it come about well i think like probably for a lot of us, especially anyone who's had a bit of anxiety, but I think most people in general will have, I think there's few people in this country who, if you say, if you said to them, oh, look, if someone's feeling anxious, what, you know, suffering from stress and anxiety and they're really struggling, what do you think they should do? Who wouldn't have sort of ready to go in the hopper a few guesses at what was likely to be the most effective thing. So I think like often people will say, oh, like, you know, what's helped me is like really like getting out and about, you know, doing some exercise. So I knew I had to cover exercise and, and that had to be, was going to have to be part of, because at the time I wasn't doing any, I was doing zero exercise. So I knew that had to, that was going to have to be part of it. But then I needed to look into the science behind it because I wanted everything to be sort of scientifically informed. Um diet i knew was going to be another thing that came up but there'd also been sort of quite a lot of buzzy stuff around microbiome and gut microbes and how that affects our mental health and the stomach as the second brain and all this so i knew probably i needed to find out more about that but i couldn't do it on my own or just from lifestyle articles i had to speak to actual microbiologists specializing in the gut 
and psychology and psych psychiatry and psychology right so i did that um and i knew neuroscience would be part of it just because for me my perception was to you know when you actually have like that map of the brain with different blobs of color on it that was like the pinnacle of uh science and so someone who could tell me how i, I imagined that a lot of my anxiety was to do with different parts of the brain i've heard people talk a lot about the amygdala i knew that that was maybe something to do with anxiety and i should go and speak to people about so those were like i had a few sort of like key targets on my hit list if you like on my most wanted and then down from that there were some other things that i knew uh that, that i'd heard about that i wanted to check out so i i knew there was a lot of buzz around uh, psychedelic therapy and that being sort of transformative for different people and I wanted to look into that and see where we were with it and what the state of it was I knew that I heard a lot of stuff about um sort of cold exposure and 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 breathing definitely made it made sense that that was something to do with it. I think as a panic attack sufferer that was something that made a lot of sense as well. So I wanted to look into those two. Genetics is another one. Like people had, loads of people had said to me, well, quite a lot of it is, you know, you, some people are born more anxious than others. Loads of people have quoted the figure um, that a third of your an chance of being anxious is made up of your genes or something like that. And so I was like, well, a lot of people have said this to me, like, could I could I just be genetically anxious? You know, could I have inherited an anxiety gene? Um, Cause a lot of it, so I wanted to learn about that. Um, and well, the only one thing I didn't want to do is I didn't want to write a book and I'm not saying there isn't, there isn't a place for this, but I didn't want to just create funny situations where I kind of went to see someone who was like, obviously um, a bit of a ding dong, you know, who was doing something that was like a, I'm I'm going to do this like funny, slightly humiliating therapy that doesn't seem very real, that I don't think is very real, but will make like a funny bit because ha ha Tim's put himself in a ridiculous situation. I thought it was important to honour the fact that as much as I don't mind, you know, taking the Mickey out of myself a little bit in the book and and seeing the funny side of it where appropriate, I didn't want that to undercut the fact that I was desperate and that. You know, I faced times in my life where I didn't really want to be here because I felt so boxed into a corner. I felt so ashamed. I felt so much like I was affecting my family. I felt so much like I wouldn't be able to sustain a relationship. And it was damaging, you know, my relationship with my wife because I was so ill and I couldn't work and I couldn't be an adult and I couldn't go and enjoy the things so as much as there was like bits of humor in there and I think there are some things that are funny about it I didn't want to make the reader film I didn't there's there's often like a pressure in a lot of mental health discourse when you're sort of talking to an audience to do this thing where you sort of take the mickey out yourself and you make some self-deprecating jokes in a way to make people feel more comfortable. And I understand that, but there's a little bit of the sort of ending up playing it down so people don't feel freaked out. So there's not uncomfortable silences. You know, so much of, uh, you know, the performance poetry and stand-up tradition that I came from is 
about that Wordsworth idea of like emotion recollected in tranquility. So the idea is you constantly have to reassure the audience, I'm all right now. You don't need to do anything for me now. I was bad, but chill because I've like come to the end of my recovery narrative and we can look back and laugh, but I'm here with you, a normal person looking back. And actually like when I was writing the book, I was really not okay. And I wanted to reflect that, if only because I rarely saw it in print and in art of people just going, oh, "Look, I'm not okay now." Like uh, that's I, I. Sorry, that's me in the in the book. You know, I do feel like I, I'm doing pretty good now. But um, I wanted to, I just wanted to reflect that honesty and that authenticity of my experience, which was like, it, 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 I, I don't, don't, didn't come. You know, I don't. You don't come out of it looking very well. A, 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 looking super good a lot of the time when you're ill. Um, you come out of it looking feeling a bit ashamed and uh, I didn't want to sugarcoat it because I felt like I'd be doing a disservice you know in purely selfish terms to myself yeah I suppose it just doesn't serve anyone right it doesn't serve you to do it that way and it certainly doesn't serve the reader because you could write a book like you say of um, amusing unusual unique anecdotes which will get read once and it'll go on a dusty shelf and end up in the charity shop or you can write something of like substance and use and like I know I will go back to your book you know and and like oh Tim wrote a chapter about that what did he say again and I will go back and I'll look at the um look at your like objective view of it and for things like um exercise because I would like to kind of dig into a, a couple of them today without obviously putting you on the spot Tim you know but um oh please do is is things like you know we all know or we are all told that physical activity is good for our mental health and our well-being and you know, handy for the mental illness toolkit. Very few people know why, like we have our own anecdotal reasons why, um, but very few people know like physiologically or, you know, from a, a science point of view or whatever, why. And for me, I found that fat fascinating, you know, it really kind of, it got me to look at things that I do and think, oh, that's why they, maybe they work and things that I haven't done and think, oh, well, that's why that could be useful for me. And I think that's, yeah, that it, it just serves the reader, doesn't it? If you kind of have that more not serious, but um, yeah, if you like, yeah, throw yourself into it and say, these are the things I'm going to look at. Um, but yeah, could we have a little chat about exercise? And, you know, that would be the probably the first one that, that you know, that's probably one of the most common recommended things, isn't it? Physical activity. Um, when you started to explore that for the book, were you, um, were you into, I mean, we were talking about running before we logged on, but were you into exercise at all before you started, uh, started writing? No, I, no, not at all. No, I didn't. Ex I just I just didn't exercise. I'd done a bit of exercise when I was at university, but that was a good sort of 20 years previously. So, excuse me. So I've been into exercise when I was at university a bit, but periodically at university, not even consistently then. But when it came to writing the book, I mean, I was just doing the classic parent thing of like being very sleep deprived. Uh, a lot of my time taken up with looking after my daughter, which, you know, obviously I didn't resent. I don't ever want to sound like I'm ever complaining about that. It was wonderful. But I was also haggard with sleep loss. And then I had to do a job. Like, uh, and then I, you know, I, and then maybe I'd have a little bit of time to see my friends who I, you know, suddenly was cut off from. And I think that's important as well. And so there was a lot of comfort eating. There's a lot of 
or should we just get a takeaway um, as a treat to ourselves? And it's, it would seem sort of puritanical and weird to not do that. And, 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 and so I wasn't doing any exercise at all. And it seemed to me like it was going to be an important plank in the in, in in trying to fight back against anxiety. I should say, like, just from a purely, we all, I think a lot of people, especially with certain times in sort of mental illness, I, I think it should, we can just even just go from common sense and our knowledge to say that, anx- that exercise on its own is never going to be a treatment or cure for a condition like we can with, with the possible exception of depression most of us can think of like times when someone is doing loads of exercise and it's quite clearly you know suffering in the in the throes of like a like manic upswing or like you, you just because you're exercising doesn't mean sometimes people can chronically over exercise in a way that's not healthy so I want to be clear like it's definitely not a panacea and then I started digging into the research right and there's a really really good paper by a psychologist psychologist called um Peter Salmon where he sort of digs into loads of the studies on anxiety and exercise and one of the things he points out is a lot of the data is contradictory partly because loads of the studies that supposedly are about we talked about this at the beginning, you know, that you were talking about the difference between anxiety and clinical anxiety. A lot of the stuff that you'll read in the paper that it was like saying study finds that running three times a week significantly improves anxiety. Um, A lot of the populations that those studies are on are not clinically anxious. They just ask how stressed are you? How much do you suffer from worry in your daily life at the beginning and at the end? They're not screens to be people with clinical anxiety they're just people so it might be useful as a kind of like general life maintenance thing but it's not people treating anxiety you don't necessarily know that you can extrapolate it into a clinical population right secondly these are not studies people aren't called up to participate in studies like jury service You, you have to volunteer and you only volunteer if you're aware like i'm on a, um, a couple of mailing lists now so I can volunteer for psychological studies. And then you go, yes, I would like to do that. Well, it turns out people who sign up for studies that involve them doing like intense exercise, large, often, normally for little or no uh, compensation, tend to like exercise or at least feel okay about it. Like if you are you know, out of shape and you hate running, you're unlikely to go, I'm going to get a £10 Amazon gift card for taking part in this 13-week running study. Oh, yeah, and I'm clinically anxious as well, by the way. And I'm going to... Those, that, so so it, they tend to be massively skewed towards people who enjoy sport to begin with, who are often in pretty good shape. And then they don't really, you know, is there a difference between like doing hit, like doing high intensity interval training versus people who go for walks? All of those can be put under the umbrella of exercise, swimming. Well, what do we mean when we say exercise? How much? Do the studies check that people stuck to it, you know? And then 
you get studies that go, look, people who run three times a week tend to be less anxious. But if we look at it that way around, is it just because, like, if you're depressed or anxious, you're less likely to go for a run? Like, like, it, are we looking at it the wrong way around in some of these studies? Because they'll say people who spend, you know, two hours in nature every week tend to be less depressed. Well, yeah, I mean, also, I suspect people who spend less time in their in their dressing gown and underpants tend to be less depressed. But it doesn't mean that, like, putting your clothes on necessarily improves depression. It's just that those things correlate. And we don't know the arrow, what direction the arrow of causality is. So I think there's loads of reasons that when we're talking about, oh, there's this massive body of ed- evidence for exercise, and, and, and I, I, you know, I, I want to be clear. I'm not actually anti-exercise. I'm just I want us to start from a, a foundation, a complete honesty and truth. Loads of the research is not actually supporting anything. We don't, you know, we don't necessarily know. So, so that's the kind of that was what surprised me to begin with was actually just how much muddiness and ambiguity there is and how difficult it is to do a a good quality study. You know, you've probably heard people talk about this, you know, the gold standard of research is the double blind randomized control trial. Well, you that's the idea being that people don't know what group they're in, whether they're in the control group. You can do that with pills. People know if they're on treadmill. Like people know if you know if you you can't do a placebo run. Like it's not a thing. And so it's actually very difficult to structure studies in a way that meet the highest. That's not a fault of the research. That's just it's tricky. So and there's loads of confounders. So that's the kind of murky, swimmy, very sounds very pedantic chin stroking. On the other hand, that you have to go into and kind of grapple with when we approach this area. And it's not what I wanted to hear. I just wanted a series of studies, someone to sort of like get me on a treadmill, get me one of those sort of like volumetric uh breathing thing masks on my face. I'd do a bit of running and they'd go, okay, like this is gonna get you 20% less anxious. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, that was, you know, that that was beautifully put. And it was something I really took away from your book um, as like adjacent to the mental health aspect of it was just a bit more understanding about how studies work and how every every study has its flaws. And just because something is a scientific study does not mean that it's gospel and that everything is now proven. And that's just not how science works at all. But yeah, that's a, that's a, a good point. Something I always think about any of these um I don't know, support systems, coping mechanisms, whatever you want to call them, is that there's the thing and then there's all the things around the thing that are also quite good. So if someone's running three times a week and it makes them feel less anxious, it could be because of running. It could also be because they are backing themselves to do something three times a week and showing up for themselves, which is really good for us. It could be that they do that with a running club and now they're part of a community that they weren't part of before and they're making new friends and that's also really good for us. A, A lot of exercise, I think, Um, And they get purely sort of anecdotal, but there's a certain element of like controlling our suffering. And if you're like not well and you feel like you don't have control over your head and how much you suffer, well, suffering by running up the road and not, you know, carrying on when you really want to quit and I'm going to make it to the next lamppost before I walk home and all that stuff. That's great for us. Right. So there's the thing. And then there's all the things around the thing. um, And did stuff like that sort of come out in some of the other things that you were uh, that you looked into? Yeah, absolutely. And I think with that, all of those things you're talking about 
um, in the research that we call them like extraneous variables or confounders. They're problems because we're like, oh, maybe these people didn't get better because of uh, the running. Maybe they got better because of the sense of community support. Maybe they got better because they were overcoming a series of challenges and that experience can feel give you little what they call sort of like mastery experiences and that builds your sense of what bandera called self-efficacy which makes you feel less anxious right uh maybe some some research on running just suggests that exercise is it just some works partly because it's a distraction like it gets you uh, and so all of that's a problem in research right because you go oh well we don't quite know what it is it's not a problem for you as an individual, right? It doesn't, it, you know, ultimately you don't really care what it was that was doing it. If it's a series of these things that are all working in tandem, I, I want to say like another one that's really important before, important before we move away for exercise that I think is if you're suffering from, um, if you suffer from panic attacks, doing that kind of like hard sprints up a hill where you feel out of breath, where you feel like your chest is tight, your throat's tightening, and you know this isn't because I'm under threat, it's because I've run up a hill. Exper choosing to consensually experience a lot of the symptoms of a panic attack and know that you're not in danger and then just get to run through them or have a little rest and let them come back down is a form of, you know, what they call in uh phobias like exposure therapy right you get to be in that situation and it's not a threat and you get to learn to not associate those symptoms with danger and every time so you get a portion of your life where you're having all the symptoms of a panic attack and you know you're fine and that can be therapeutic as well so all of those things you you, you talk about i could totally agree with um but yeah there, there's i mean a, a great example is um uh, out, outdoor swimming and cold exposure where for the same reasons um you know we, we tend to focus on the physiology of it but it's giving you this uh challenge experience that might build your sense of self-efficacy because you've made a prediction about what you can and can't do you feel this anxiety building up and then you do it and you did it and you it, it, it it's it is empowering or it can be if you chose to do it right. If you're forced to do these things, of course, consent, as in so many aspects of life, is crucial. But if you choose to do this and you overcome something and you predicted you couldn't and then you do, that sort of damages you, the whole negative prediction model in your head in a way that makes you go, what else could I be wrong about? And that's, I mean, that's definitely what happened with me in exercise was I started going, what else could I be wrong about? Because I thought I couldn't exercise and now here I am, here I am doing more and more and more and show it. And, and I'm getting gains for the first time in my life. I'm, I've, I'm more fit. I can keep up with my daughter. What's going on? What else am I wrong about? And I've stuck to this. What else am I wrong about? But also, like you say, if you're part of a group and we know from studies, sometimes of like religious communities, that having that kind of commute, that resilience can be a community uh, trait and having people you can talk to. They've done studies of people who are in a sort of spiritual or religious community, and they take a various hormonal indicators of stress, and they see it's lower in people who are surrounded by people who they can talk to about their problems, you know? So if you're part of a swimming club and you get to go, and, and you're being in nature as well, 
when we have various studies, most famously the kind of Japanese forest bathing studies, that, but being in a kind of relaxing non-urban environment seems probably for most people to have uh, a good effect on relaxation. I mean, look, most of the times I've gone to do outdoor swimming, most of it has been having to like take a long walk in the woods to find the swimming spot first. Well, clearly that walk and that walking in nature is itself like really nice. And I've been walking with a friend and we'd be having a chat and catching up. So we're doing, we're kind of forced into this really nice sort of communal support. All of those things, I think, can make a huge difference. And it's not necessarily the one thing. And, and the placebo effect, I suppose, is the thing that I'm dancing around here as well. This idea that your expectation about what's going to work, your sense that you're doing something, can itself, especially with something like anxiety, make a big difference. They've you know talked about, I talk about in the book, this idea of the dysphoria of not knowing, the dysphoria of uncertainty, where you're like, why am I like this? You know, the most common question I got when I asked people what questions they had about anxiety, I did a big survey, I got over 500 responses. The most common question where I had at the end of it, I was like, what question would you like answered about anxiety? The most common question was, why me? Which sounds a bit plaintive. And maybe some people would see that as a bit sort of uh, a victim mindset or whatever. But it's so confusing and upsetting to not know why something is affecting you. And, and to have any sort of reason, oh, it's because I like need to, you know, because I've got too much of this hormone, I need to do exercise. I'm not saying I think those things can be false dawns ultimately, but I think in the short term, having been given a reason can itself reduce anxiety, <laughs> even if that reason is false. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It really, really does. And sometimes just um, yeah, having a why I always think of um I resisted taking medication for a long, long time for all the usual reasons that people do. And when I started, it kicked in really quick, like much quicker than any doctor told me it was going to and I had all the side effects that are supposed to come with it but within days I was like a different person and a lot of that could well be placebo right and I don't care because it because it, it worked for me in that moment it was what I needed and yeah and just sometimes having like having a reason having an explanation having tangible help when you feel like there's no help available and someone just puts a hand down into the darkness and says try this and that thing works well it doesn't really matter why it works right it just matters that it fucking worked in that moment and and why worry about I, anything else yeah i, I want to be yeah i just want to you know anyone who's suffering from anxiety or really whatever you you know if, if you're suffering from severe anxiety you can make decisions based on what works for you you are not you're not like a commissioner for all health cycle. You're not a commissioner for mental health interventions across the whole of like Western Europe. If you were, and you were choosing how to spend like a budget of billions of pounds or euros on like how you're going to treat different communities. Yeah. You probably need to sort of start looking at studies pretty seriously, but if it's you, you're actually not answerable to anyone. And if it works for you, no one can come in with that kind of clipboard and go, actually, I think you're fine. Because what I want to say is like all these studies are only ever dealing with averages anyway. To, 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 to say, oh, well, that doesn't work is a misapplication of the science. It's like saying, 
you, you it's like me saying oh my favorite dessert is key lime pie and you say well actually a study in uh, 2020 showed that 75 percent of people's favorite uh, dessert is banoffee pie so you're wrong that isn't your favorite it's like no if i'd said this is objectively the one that most people like you could say that but if i like it that's represented in all the studies you'll find the most rubbish uh interventions that seem to do really badly you'll find a couple of people in those studies who <laughs> you know they did they, they recovered they did great and and who's to say so i don't want to you know i think we can make unscientific claims about something but you don't have to uh you don't have to appease the entire scientific community you're not making any claim about that if you do something um and it it works for you that's just not how the studies work that's not there they're, they're talking about broad population level averages uh and as long as you're not saying i did this and now I need to go and spread the word to everyone else because it's the only thing that will work for them, which I think is, it feels like an emotional truth. And often if something works for us really well, we're desperate to kind of tell other people, this is how you can be freed. That won't always be true, but I think it is important to not, not let, you know, to, to not go, well, I'm not allowed to do this because I read a study that says it might be placebo. Well, you know, like placebo is a psychological effect and we're looking for a psychological effect. So uh, ironically, that's all you need it to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's perfect. Yeah. And one of the other ones I wanted to ask you about, Tim, was um, psychedelics as well. And um, I think that's partly like my kind of my own uh, interest in it through exploring it on this podcast. Uh, I've done a few episodes about psychedelics and very similar to what you talked about before is I didn't want to get a load of, um, you know, sort of, I don't know, hippies who love psychedelics and get them to tell me how great it was, right? Because that didn't serve anyone. So I spoke to uh, Dr. Rosalind Watts, who was involved at the study at Imperial College. And then I spoke to um, Ian Roulier and Leonie Schneider, who were on that some of those studies as well, and kind of got that overview of it. And I found those particularly fascinating episodes and I had really good responses to them too. And it's something I wanted to um, just chat to yourself about because um, you know, you went all in on that chapter of the book and that's a really scary, um, it's just like an area that we don't understand and you don't know who to trust. And, you know, you kind of, you, you, you really went, you really backed yourself in that one, right? You kind of, uh, you followed that experience all the way through, I think. Yeah. I, I, so I, I did, um, I, so sometimes I, 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 you know, I worked, it was a little bit of a kind of back, back of the fag packet uh uh like equation of working out how much i needed to take but i looked at what was considered the high dose for psilocybin studies uh and i and i took that um i would say you know there's the the discourse has got a bunch of there's some reasons why it can get a bit um I don't, I actually think it's not as, it's it, funnily enough, like psychedelic discourse is generally not as heated as the discussions around antidepressants. I, I think that there's still able to be sort of a respectful back and forth around it. Um, but because historically that, you know, there were crackdowns on LS, not just LSD being available as a recreational drug, but LSD research, um, 
I think a lot of people researching in the area really have got this pressure on them to do very good PR around it because there's a bunch of people who sort of reflexively, you, you know, you'll see it, it, it's a, it makes very good newspaper articles to do to talk about like MDMA, you know, party killer party drug now used in trials and things like this. My experience of talking to people who are involved in those trials are <laughs> it's such a I sorry it sounds patronizing for me to go they're very nice people like I, I I but um you know just as an aside I don't have any doubts in my talks with them that these aren't like very compassionate people who genuinely care hugely about the welfare of the people that not just might be served by it in a while but who they're dealing with in those trials and, and who couldn't be when you hear some of the stories of what they've gone through, especially, you know, how MDMA is often used to treat like really absolutely just the most brutal trauma and people have been through the roughest things. And I think I think what can unite people of sort of like all sorts of different ideologies across the like political spectrum, for example, is how so much of psychedelics research partly started with a need to treat uh like war veterans who've been so horribly traumatized by their experiences you know giving you know risking their lives to try and do what they felt was serving their country and we i i, I think you know no no one wants someone who's made those sacrifices to then come back and be chucked on the scrap heap and not have ways of support and these are these studies are looking at ways to support people who've got like incredibly bad like war ptsd or are in the last few weeks of their life and are facing you know death from a terminal illness and need help with that um i i just feel like this is like a, a very easy cohort of people for us to care about and want and, and that's the other thing as well as i should say like so much of the uh, anxiety discourse when you know i read the world health organization reports and 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 for better or worse they're often pitched at this is the kind of global burden on industry days day working days lost to mental illness so a lot of the discourse tries to justify itself by going look governments it's costing the economy this much and i understand the pragmatism behind that right they're trying to say we need to take it seriously and hey business i know this you wouldn't traditionally care about this but this is why we need to this is why it's in everyone's interests it, it, there's no real benefits to the economy to help people in hospices to help people in the last days of their life and so i think some of this research is like incredibly important and compassionate because it's really just going what's like human what are human lives worth and what's human dignity worth so so i just want to preface everything with that before i jump in and say as a result and as a result of the kind of slings and arrows that are immediately coming at people when they talk about psychedelic research i think occasionally there can be a little bit of overhyping and every field in psychology is um guilty of this but a, a bit like um how we get reporting on kind of like new tech and like new VR things where often the reporters are not qualified to 
to critique it very well. And so they'll be told about some, you know, soon in five years, everyone's going to be wearing VR R helmets and, and doing their online shopping in, and, and it's like that never happens, right? But the, but the reporter sort of breathlessly and uncritically reports on this. Well, in a similar way, that's how the psychedelic discourse has, has been going on, saying, you know, maybe this is going to be this go-to, and, and it's quite exciting as well. It's not very exciting to say someone took an antidepressant and now they feel a bit better. To say, like, I went into a room and I took a load of psilocybin and the walls started melting and I, you know, like, I met a, like an angel, like a, a translucent angel who started, you know, I, I, I started talking with. And then when I woke up, I was a bit less anxious, right? That's a much more interesting story. Um, and, and that happens to be what, one of the things that happened to me when I did it. You know, I genuinely had that experience. Like, it is, as you'd imagine, like, pretty wild. It's, it's a much more um, incident-laden experience and and, and and theoretically a lot quicker but when i sort of dived into a lot of the research I, I have to say um it's it's not there yet and it may never be you know we don't know how well it's going to do but, but but very broadly speaking it looks like about maybe a third of people in general terms um seem to gain some relief uh from this like like something like psilocybin about a third maybe it helps a bit but it doesn't they we wouldn't say that they were quote-unquote cured or they were their depression or anxiety had lifted and then about a third there's no effect whatsoever or they have a negative experience and also if you look at the studies about a month after those gains those boosts those people being they're often dipping back down towards baseline. So clearly something is happening. Something is happening. And I think that I think it's cool. I would be really interested. I don't think that they can, again, we have the problem of double blind controlled trials. You know, if you're floridly hallucinating, there's no way to do double blind control trials. They'll talk about controls in some of them where they'll give them like a, a low dose versus a high dose. But the only way you could read that study and go, that's a that's a blinded trial is if you've never taken a low dose of psilocybin versus a high dose of psilocybin. It is genuinely, it's the difference between having a pint after work and like downing a Wellington boot of tequila. I, I've had a low dose of psilocybin that they describe in it. You're a bit giggly. A high dose, like the, I want to say the walls are melting. I'm not, it, it's not some like psychedelic joke. I mean, like the walls are literally running like tal like tallow they are changing you are hallucinating in every way that you would imagine the sort of like cartoonishly hallucinating and then the room might not be there at all you might just be somewhere else you might have taken off you might not be able to feel your body you might have exploded into pieces you might be talking with the dead like <laughs> you know, like it's not like oh, I wonder if I'm in the higher versus lower dose uh, group. You know, like and in fact, when I spoke to one of the researchers, and this wasn't included in the paper, but when I spoke to one of the researchers, they told me um, that 
often the, the role of the sitter in those trials is to manage the disappointment of someone who realizes pretty early on that they're in the low dose a group because they they wanted that transcendental experience they're they're yearning for it because they've heard so much in the newspapers that this can help them so i think it's a really complex area i think there's a lot of unregulated stuff um i but regulation only works if it's good i think a lot and i'm not i don't want to criticize uh, uh, you know there's within that unregulated group there's some people doing amazing work and there's some people who are probably doing probably less qualified i think there's few people who i would think of as truly predatory but when you're going to go into a room entirely controlled by them and take something uh, a drug that will incapacitate you for the day where you're highly sensitive to anything going on i think you've got to be really the level of trust you need is quite high right that you're going to put yourself in the equivalent of a psychedelic coma and you just want someone who you trust to do basic you know one of the guys i spoke to just talked about it the job role being a bit like nursing you know you're helping someone go to the toilet you're bringing them water you're maybe sitting with them and holding their hand if they're having a tricky time well that's a that's a really trusting role mm. and i think the sort of private uh psychedelic retreat community I've actually done a lot to advance our understanding of psychedelics and therapy. Like these trials that they're doing now did not just pop out of thin air. They are, they don't acknowledge it in the papers, but um, because they don't want this association with illegality, but all of the models are developed largely out of stuff that was done illegally. And we're now doing legally, but a lot of the knowledge is, is has come out of, private practitioners either in countries where it's legal or in countries where it's illegal doing it secretly um learning what works and what doesn't so i i, I don't want to i don't want to sound like i'm being too scathing because i'm not but it's a very very complicated area which i know sounds like a non-answer um but i think um more research is needed and in the absence of positive of proof positive i think we have to say at the moment we don't have any ev- good evidence that it can help people with anxiety in uh, a consistent way. Yeah, it's such a yeah, like you say, it's such a tricky space. And yeah, that I've I've never really thought of that perspective before of where the ideas that lead to the trials, where it all starts. You know, that's a that's a fascinating point. Uh, Tim, I'm really conscious of your time, mate. And just to kind of like take us home, just to wrap up after like after all your experiences with anxiety and then spending all this time at trying things and doing things and writing about all this stuff. Where, where are you at with it now? You know, what's your kind of like take on, you know, is there a, was there a, a way of summing up all the learning that you've done? You know, what, what are your thoughts on, on anxiety now? Well, like touch wood, I'm, I'm at three and a half years of not having had a panic attack i i i since i and it's inconvenient right because i one of the things that i did the two things i did just before i stopped having panic attacks altogether were i did the cold water immersion protocol six consecutive days of three minutes at between 10 degrees and 14 degrees that was at the end of october beginning of november last day that i did it 
I started off, I thought I'd chosen reasonable weather for it. It was 10 degrees outside, but I hadn't looked at what the forecast was. And at the end of that week on the Saturday, the final day, and if people don't believe me, they can go and look it up. You can see historical records for Norwich. Um, it was minus two and I had to go into the river. Um, but it was great. And I also did hypnotherapy, which I should say, like, there is no consistent evidence um, that hypnotherapy is a, an effective treatment for a clinical anxiety you know it's a, it, it, it's not really in the level of like pseudoscience i think depending on what claims you're making about hypnosis but certainly it's not like a high uh, a treatment with a high body of good quality evidence behind it i did those two things i've never had a panic attack since um and i was like oh that's annoying because i feel like i have to be honest about that but also i wouldn't want to these are not things that have got a great deal of evidence, which speaks to what we talked about. Right? And I tried to be honest Amazing. about that in the book. I've gone, look, this is what happened to me. Make of it what you will. I'm just one lab monkey. This is what happened when I did it. I am not saying that will work for you. But actually, like, those things are, like, fairly available. Like, I mean, they're, they're, they're fairly, like, low risk. Like, I, I, I think, like, cold water exposure done safely. Um, I, I feel like is is essentially is free. Uh, so as long as you're you're doing it like with really good safety protocols in place, um, it's it's free. So you're not having and and there's not really like side effects as we like. So I I feel like I feel safe about saying look, I'm not making any scientific claims about it. But I haven't had panic attacks since, and it's been. I mean, it's, obviously, it's just life changing. It changes your whole sense of self. Um, I never thought I'd be free of panic attacks. Um, I, I still experience anxiety, and I still think I would definitely be considered by most people to be someone who um, is a little bit highly strung uh, compared to the average. Uh, but I, I think like with panic attacks out the way, it's much easier to make my peace with that. And it's much easier to see the things that help, like improving my diet. My diet is so much better. Um, and, and I'm really, fortunately, the things about exercise and diet are just things that we're recommended to be doing anyway for our health. So luckily, like the things that are good for anxiety generally that I found are good for anxiety are also just like sensible changes, you know, eating lots of plant-based polysaccharides and getting lots of, you know, cut different colored uh, vegetables and fruit uh you know cutting down on too much you know high refined sugars and energy drinks and things like that so you're not getting that big sugar spike and then a crash and and you know doing exercise getting your body moving so you've got a healthy heart so it probably is going to help you in the long run once you built that up um sleep a bit better um deal with stress hormones a bit better you know actually you know exercise is a suggest that people who are do more exercise we might produce a bit more adrenaline and cortisol in response to a surprise or shock but we it tends to disappear quicker as well so all of those things put together you know and i really noticed having had a bout of flu earlier this year and then covid when it stopped me from being able to exercise i really noticed the the knock-on effect on my 
uh, well-being and my like nervous levels. And so, yeah, like I, I think now I've got so many more tools for managing it. But also, I, I know this going to sound silly, but I just also take it less personally when I'm having a difficult day. I'm, I'm so much more able to see it as a, uh, a temporary thing rather than part of my personality. And I, I think learning about the um, physiology of panic attacks made a huge difference to me as well, because it just sort of demystified them in a way that it's almost when you've kind of seen behind the curtain, you know, when you like look back at an old movie and the effects seem really bad and you're never, and, but you remember watching it as a kid and going, Whoa, and you're like, this is very obviously a bad effect. Like I can, I can kind of see the, I can see the green screen. They're not quite cut out. Right. That's how I feel about panic attacks now, really. It's like the effect is that it's never going to have that transformative Hollywood effect on me anymore. I'm never going to quite, because I can see the strings. Uh, and I never thought I'd get there. So that's where I am with it. I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I wish I had like a set of protocols where I was like, here's what the problem is. And I think like it's very tempting to get pulled down one particular path and say, this is the one thing. But I, but really for me, dealing with anxiety is the same way that you go out into like cold weather, right? You don't just like put on one glove and go, I found the one solution. And then if you weren't warm, go right, gloves don't work for making you warmer. No, like it's like, do you put on a second glove? Do you put on a hat? Do you put on a scarf and a coat? Um, do you, you know, like what do you, you don't try those all individually and then conclude that none of them work because you are still cold. You can put them all together. And I, I think the, the great thing about the complexity of anxiety, you know, where we're, it's like, it's a little bit to do with your body. It's a little bit to do with your mindset. It's a bit to do with your environment and the world you're in and how people within you in that world relate to you. That can seem a bit fiddly and people just want like the one answer. But the, the other thing is like anxiety is like chronic anxiety, disordered anxiety. It's quite a complicated production for you to maintain. It's like it's like a big army that needs supply lines and feeding and all these different things have to be feeding it. And actually, even though it's complicated, what you've actually got is loads of different options for places that you poke out its supports and you harry it and you make its life harder. And so the, the flip side to all this complexity is that you can attack it from the kind of biological and neuro level. You can, you can use that if you want. You can attack it from your uh, set of uh, expectations and your mindset and how you think about things and, and you know, your past and you know, that level as well. The, this is the biopsychosocial model, right? And then you can look at society and you can go like, how do we treat each other? How can we improve the conversation? How can we, when we know that poverty is such a huge driver of mental illness and, you know, your chance of having a phobia triples if you're unemployed, if you lose your job, um, how can we look at ways of supporting people to reduce the number of people who are going to be put under this inc incredible pet pressure to start with? We can do all of those, right? And we don't have to argue for just one. And, and for me, that's where I, I'm trying to hold that complexity and uncertainty while understanding 
look, life can be pretty horrible sometimes. Like we're going to be bereaved. We're going to lose jobs. We're going to go through like the absolute worst things you can go for. And what you can't ever do and, and the trap not to fall into is try and structure your life so we aren't exposed to human suffering I, I and, it, and that sucks but that's what underlies a lot of this right is, is to show a recovery narrative that involves us you know not going through some of what we think of as like our foundational traumas or these difficult things we can't we'll never do that you know it, i i stopped having my panic attacks three months before lockdown started Right. Like it, it suddenly got like road tested in the everything I'd done in, in the most brutal sort of like, oh, my gosh, this is like a global crisis. You can't. I, you know, I, I've started exercising. I'm, <laughs> I'm eating more cress. Like it, it doesn't it, it doesn't stop all those other things. Right. It, it, you can't structure your life in a way that lets you hold the entire universe up. But what we can do is have a little bit of a sense of humour about it, right? And have these kind of discussions that me and you are having now and be able to talk about it and be able to give, make space for us to go, oh my gosh, I'm terrified. And that not be um, pathological, but that to be something that we can hold in community and share and uh, and actually can be a source of bringing us together. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way to uh, to say it. You know, I suppose so much of anxiety is about a control, right? And learning to relinquish a bit of that control. And I suppose just back yourself, back your innate human ability to kind of deal with what you need to deal with in that moment, whatever that might be, is, um, yeah, it can be a really useful thing. Mate, that was such a lovely way to, uh, to end this chat. And um, yeah, I cannot thank you enough for your time today, Tim. It's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. A big up to that proper mental podcast. A proper mental podcast. <laughs>